Uh, find Revelation 21 in your Bibles this morning. Going to be talking this morning on the subject matter, Happy Endings. And I'll say more a little bit later on concerning the selection of that text today. It's not by accident. Revelation 21, John says in verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Lord, earlier in the book of Revelation, Jesus gave these words. He said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Lord, open our ears and our eyes this morning to what you're saying in Revelation 21. Lord, help us to celebrate the consummation of our salvation we have waiting one day. And Lord, for any within the sound of my voice who don't know Christ, I pray that these words would be a wake-up call to them this morning of what they are dangerously close to missing out on. May you draw them to Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. The Taj Mahal was built between 1632 and 1653 by Shaw Johan for his beloved wife of 14 years. It is constructed of white marble and it is said that it almost appears to glisten like a jewel on the bank of a wide river. It's framed by four minarets each one placed at the corner of the red sandstone platform on which the entire building sits. The exterior of the white marble structure is inlaid with black onyx. The interior, including the walls, ceiling, caskets, inlaid with semi-precious stones in floral designs. 
Now, folks, just imagine the painstaking craftsmanship involved in completing a project that required over 20,000 skilled workers and took more than 20 years to complete. How can one measure the love that conceived such a project? In the end, the lavish and wealthy Shaw was defeated by death, first by the death of his beloved wife and then his own death. You see, the Taj Mahal is a tomb. If one Indian ruler could build something as exquisite as the Taj Mahal as a place to bury his beloved wife of 14 years, what must the Lord Jesus be preparing as a place for his bride to live with him for all of eternity? John saw our heavenly home prepared as a bride beautifully adorned for her husband. Now folks, what a stark contrast to what we looked at last week. And what we see in the world all around us today, we looked at the fall of man last week. I'll have more to say about that in a moment. And we look at all the devastation in our world today and all the pain and death and suffering. And then we read a text like this and boy, we see a huge contrast. Surely as you look at the events of the world today, there are times that you cry out like John did, even so, come Lord Jesus. For the past 20 years or so, I've believed in the rapture of the church before the tribulation, and I still do. But I want you to understand something this morning. Even conservative, Bible-believing Christians differ on this. Some feel like the church is going to go through the tribulation, and they have some very good and biblical arguments for making their point. In fact, they have just as biblical arguments as we have on the other side. The reason I mention this is we look at the events of the world today, you've got to ask yourself, if we don't get raptured out, or if we do get raptured out, are we at least getting a small glimpse, a look at the birth pains of what the tribulation is going to be like for those who are here? It's like every day now. You cut on the news and there's a terrorist attack somewhere. There's a tragedy somewhere. People are suffering. People are dying. Outlandish things are happening. Can you believe what it's going to... Can you imagine what it's going to be like during the tribulation? Are we getting a little taste of that right now? The birth pains of it? I think so. You know, I'm glad that sin and Satan don't have the last word. We know how the book ends. There's something about human nature that we long for happy endings. It's like it's programmed into us to desire and they lived happily ever after. That's what the last two chapters in the Bible give us. I love what Dr. Vance Havner used to say about this. He said, I'm so grateful that there is no Satan in the first two chapters of the Bible and there's no Satan in the last two chapters of the Bible. 
Now last week we looked at one bookend of the Bible. We looked at God's good creation and then we concentrated on what went wrong. We talked about the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3 and we talked about how the fall of man has affected all of creation. Paul says in Romans 8 that all of creation is crying out and groaning for the day of redemption of the sons of God. The fall has affected everything. Well, that's one bookend that we looked at. When things began to go wrong and why. Today we're going to look at the other bookend. I want us to see what awaits the children of God. But folks, we're not going to look at happy endings just simply for the sake of looking at happy endings. You see, on this Lord's uh, Supper Sunday, I want you to understand how we get from the devastation of the fall and all the evil that results from it to the glorious ending of the Bible. How is it that God takes us from the position of sin and death and all the suffering and tribulation in the world to a position of being seated with Christ in the heavenly places. How has God brought about this glorious redemption and this glorious reversal? Well, you and I know the answer to that. It's the cross. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.19, And Christ, God, was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And in Colossians 1.20 he said, And through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so I want you to see this morning that what gets us from the dark scene of Genesis 3 to the glorious home in Revelation 21 is the cross. Folks, if it were not for the cross of Christ, darkness and sin and separation from God would still reign. Because of the cross, there's reconciliation, there's peace with God, there's forgiveness of sin. And the cross is what God used to do all of this to bring this reconciliation to pass. If you've been reconciled to God through the cross of Christ, these verses explain to you what you have waiting And so my prayer is that as you read these verses, you'll have a sense of longing for your eternal home. And for others who don't know Christ, I hope these verses will be a wake-up call for you. Because you are literally one heartbeat away from missing out on everything we'll talk about today. First thing I want you to see with me this morning is the fact that God is preparing a place called heaven for his children. John says in verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Folks, the book of Revelation lays out the judgment of God for people who refuse Christ, but at the same time it lays out the glories of what awaits the children of God. Do you realize more is said about heaven in Revelation 21 and 22 than any other place in the Bible? 
This is what the entire storyline of the Bible has been working up to. As evangelist Billy Sunday said on one occasion, if we could get a real appreciation of what heaven is, we would all be so homesick for heaven that the devil wouldn't have a friend, a single friend left on the earth. The Bible makes it clear as believers that we are to focus on heaven. Paul said to the Philippians in Philippians 3.20 that our true citizenship is in heaven above. He said to the Colossians in Colossians 3, beginning in Colossians 3, verse 1, that we are to seek first the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. The world is not to be our focus. In fact, James says if you're a friend of the world, you're the enemy of God. The Bible says in 1 Peter 1, 4 that our inheritance is there in heaven. And in Matthew 5, 12, we're told that our reward is there. In Matthew 6, 19, Jesus said you and I, even now, are to be laying up our treasures in heaven. Where are your treasures this morning? What do you treasure? 1 John 3, 2 tells us that when we get there, we will be like the Lord Jesus because we will see him as he is. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that we will receive glorified bodies. And the Bible says in 1 John 3 that everybody who has this hope and assurance ought to be diligent about seeing to it that your life is pure and godly. As we get into chapter 21, verse 5 this morning, verse 5 is perhaps the key verse. In verse 5, John says that God is making all things new. In verse 1, John says he sees the new heaven and the new earth. What happened to the old heavens and the old earth? It's passed away. 2 Peter 3 tells us that it's all going to be burned up one day. The politicians are worried about global warming. There's going to be global warming one day that none of them are going to be able to do anything about because God's going to see to it that this current heavens and earth are all burned up and gone. And John sees here there's a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We're told that in this new heaven and new earth there's no more sea. Now some scholars take this as a statement about the unity that there's going to be in heaven. Because now all the nations of the world are divided by seas. They're ruled by separate kings, separate presidents, separate governments. And they're often so divided, so at odds with one another. Even as we see today in the world. But in heaven there's only going to be one ruler. We will be ruled by King Jesus. It's going to be a theocracy then. We don't live under a theocracy now, but it will be then because Christ is our head. It reminds me of the Old Testament and the book of 1 Samuel, how the people desired a king like the other nations. And Samuel was grieved by that. And God said to Samuel, Samuel, appoint for them a king. Understand, Samuel, they've not rejected you. They've rejected me from being king over them. Well, in this day, John is talking about Christ will be king over us. He's king of kings and lord of lords. 
the governments of this world, the leaders of this world with their sinful agendas and egos have been a constant plague on this earth. However, there's coming a day that we will be under God's rule. And John is talking about that here and how wonderful it's going to be. Also, we need to understand the connections in this passage right here to the book of Isaiah. There's, a lot, there's lots of allusions in Revelation 21 and 22 to the book of Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, the storms symbolize... They're they're always tossed up. The waves are always churning and foaming. And in the book of Isaiah, that is a picture of the wicked in the world. How they're always churning up something and always fighting and always division. And so to say that there's no more sea is to say that all the wicked with their evil ways will not be a part of heaven in any way. We will be united under God's rule and there will be no turmoil and no trouble, no trial and no tribulation in verse 2 we see the holy city descending from heaven now what John is describing here is our eternal abode it's it's finally ready it's adorned in chapter 19 the church was compared to a bride adorned for her groom. Here the heavenly city likewise, like a bride, is adorned and ready for the saints. And so we are made ready like a bride for Jesus. And the new Jerusalem, like a bride, is made ready for us. What a beautiful sight John's describing here. The bride's completely ready, adorned, spotless. The heavenly home is completely ready, adorned, spotless. Folks, heaven is a place. It is a real place. Jesus said to his disciples in John 14, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Heaven is a place. Paul said that he was convinced that all the present sufferings of this age cannot even begin to compare to the glory that is to be revealed to us. I'm reminded of a little boy that was out walking one night with his grandpa. It was a beautiful starlit night and he said, Grandpa, if heaven is so beautiful on the outside, what must it look like on the inside? God is preparing a place called heaven for his children. Secondly, I want you to notice heaven will be a place of God's eternal presence with his children. In verse 3, John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He hears the words of an angel here and the angel proclaims that God himself is going to mingle among his people. Remember last week? Looking at Genesis 3, if you were to go back and look at Genesis 1 and 2, before the fall, there was God walking with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day. 
Well, things are going to end. Things began in a garden. They're going to end in a garden. And God is going to be walking with his saints. And this time, there's going to be no sin and no Satan that can mess it up. God himself, verse 4, he says, will minister to his people. Now, folks, I want you to think back with me a moment to the Old Testament. I want you to remember the tabernacle that went everywhere with them in the wilderness. Remember when they, when they left Egypt, got out into the wilderness, they set up that tabernacle, and then they prayed and they dedicated that place of worship to God. And as they dedicated the tabernacle, what happened? The glory of God moved in. The Shekinah glory of God moved in. To that tabernacle. Everywhere they went and set up that tabernacle, God was with them. And then in John chapter 1, what does the Bible say? That the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt is literally He tabernacled among us. And then in John chapter 16, Jesus said, I'm going away, but when I go away, I'm going to pray to the Father and He's going to send another, the Holy Spirit, who will be your helper and comforter and He will dwell with you always, even to the end of the age. And then on the day of Pentecost, what happened? The Holy Spirit fell on his people and he tabernacled with them. The Bible says where two or three are gathered together in his name, he's here in our midst. It's always been God's plan to tabernacle with his people, to dwell with his people. Now, on this earth, sin has always affected that, that fellowship to some degree. But folks, can you imagine, can you imagine a place where there is no more sin, no more darkness, nothing to hinder our walk with God, where we will dwell with God and He with us in perfect righteousness? Have you ever been in a revival meeting or in a prayer meeting? I tell you what, last Sunday night, the 40 or 50 people who gathered here to pray around this altar, I'm telling you, that was a, in 27 years of ministry, I have never witnessed a prayer meeting like that. Our people for 90 minutes straight were crying out to God, and you could just sense the presence of God in this place. Have you ever been in a meeting like that? Well, can you imagine when we get to heaven one day and there's no sin and no Satan and we're dwelling among God and God among his people and there will be nothing to destroy or hinder that fellowship whatsoever. It's going to be a place of eternal God's eternal presence with us. Thirdly, I want you to see from verse 4, God's children can anticipate a time and a place involving an absence of pain and sorrow. There will be no more tears. Now, folks, what this means is that they're going to be banished altogether. Everything causing pain and sorrow and tears is going to be done away with. Death will be gone. No more death. Some people view death as a friend. Bible describes it as the last enemy. I guess it can be a friend. If you're an aged person and you're all gnarled up and crippled up, laying in a bed, and you're crying out in agony and pain, 
and you've lived all your life and, you, and you're saved and you know you have a glorious home going with Jesus awaiting, I, I guess in a case like that, death is a friend. But folks, the Bible still describes death as an enemy, the last enemy that will be destroyed. No more death. 1 Corinthians 15 says death is defeated now through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and someday it will be defeated and removed altogether. And then in a sweeping way, verse 4 closes by saying neither shall there be any more mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. All the bad memories you have, all the broken promises are erased. Apparently, we won't remember friends or family who have not made it to heaven. Just think of it, folks. No grief, no more broken hearts, no more broken homes, no hospitals, no cancer, no Alzheimer's, no blindness, no deafness, no surgeries, no prisons, no terrorism, no ambulances, no sickness, no suffering, no dying, no funeral processions ever All of that will be gone. Dr. George W. Truett, founding pastor, First Baptist Church, Dallas, Texas, was visiting with an elderly man in his congregation uh, one evening. And that man was about to die. He'd only been given moments or hours. And Dr. Truett looked at him and said, Sir, I want you to understand you're going to be better in the morning. And he looked up at Dr. Truett and he said, No, pastor, I'm not going to be better in the morning. I'm going to be well in the morning. No more death, no more tears, no more suffering, no more sorrow. The former things have passed away. The devil and the false prophet and all the unbelieving have been cast into the lake of fire. God makes a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness and perfection dwells. Everything's perfect. That's what you can anticipate if you're in Christ. Finally, the saints have these assurances based on the steadfast promises of God. Look beginning in verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said... Now folks, I want you to understand the significance of what's going on here. Previously it's been an angel talking. Now it is God himself. It's the one seated on the throne. And he says, behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. All of these assurances we have in this passage are based on the promises of God. Somebody might think, you know what? It just sounds too good to be true. Don't we tell our kids and grandkids that? If something happens and and, and somebody sells them a false bill of goods, you look at your kids and you say, don't you understand there's no free lunch? If it's too good, if it sounds too good to be true, guess what? It's too good to be true. But here it's God talking and making these promises. It's not too good to be true. It's going to happen just like he says. His words are faithful and true. Verse 6, he says it's done. 
It's a sure thing. You can take it to the bank as we say. He's the alpha, the first letter of the Greek alphabet. The omega, the last letter. He's the beginning and the end. All of these are the sure promises of God. Heaven is going to be a place of complete satisfaction. In verse 6 he says, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. He's saying here there's going to be no emptiness, no lack. God is going to perfectly satisfy every hunger and thirst in us and there will be no hunger and thirst in us for anything that is sinful and God is going to supply every need that you will ever have and it's not going to cost you anything because the price has already been paid verse 6 here says Jesus paid it all just like that hymn Jesus paid it all all to him I owe Folks, now what we are about to recognize and celebrate in the Lord's Supper this morning is the means by which God accomplishes all of this. And that's why Paul said to the Galatians, if I'm going to boast in anything, I'm going to boast in the cross. How do we get from Genesis 3 to Revelation 21 through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, through the cross. Through the cross, God has purposed to reconcile all things to himself. This morning, do you have the assurance that you're going to a heavenly home, to this home described here? If so, I want you to just think this morning with gratitude about what awaits you. It's going to be glorious. And imagine all all of your senses being flooded beyond comprehension. Imagine the awesomeness of experience in the presence and glory of God without anything present that could diminish that. Imagine meeting the people in the Bible that we only read about. Don't you want to do that? You know, every year around Easter, different times of the year, there are all these shows that come out on Christ. Some of them are on Moses and the children of Israel. And, and, and Hollywood, it always, Connie will tell you, it always bugs me. Why do they have to divert from what the Bible They'll be going along just fine. And I'll be like, yeah, 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 that's what the Bible says. And then all of a sudden they inject something. I'm like, where in the world did they get that? You know what I'm looking for? I hope God one day... And 3D motion pictures will say, here, let, let me show you how it really happened. And we'll get, we'll, it'll be like we, we're there with the children of Israel. And, and, and here's the Red Sea and God opens it up. And we'll see exactly how it happened as God did it, not as Hollywood does it. I hope God will let us see something like that. Not because we doubt his word, because we have the sure word of God. It'd just be neat to see how it really happened. Whatever you're going through now, remember, be faithful. It is going to be worth it one day. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. There's a happy ending coming for God's people. 
I read again this week in a book by Ann Graham Lotz, a story I've told you before about missionary Henry Morrison. Henry Morrison served uh, on the missionary field in Africa for 40 years, invested their lives in the African tribes. 40 years working with people who lived in poverty and grass huts and, and destitution and, and illnesses beyond anything we can imagine here. They worked among those people and saw many of them come to faith in Christ. They were there when their babies were born. They were there when they put them in the graves. When they died, they invested their lives for 40 years. They had retired and had to say goodbye to those people. Can you imagine saying goodbye to a people you'd ministered to for 40 years? They got on that ship coming back to America, and it happened to be the very same ship that the President of the United States, Teddy Roosevelt, was on. Teddy Roosevelt was a big game hunter. He loved to go to Africa and kill lions and tigers and all the big game. And he had gone to Africa for a three-week safari to hunt big game. And he was coming back. And as they, that ship pulled in to the harbor there at, at, at New York City, there were crowds there. Welcome home, Mr. President. A big ticker tape parade. And Henry Morrison turned and looked at his wife. And he said, will there be a single person here to to greet us. Here we've invested our lives 40 years in the people of Africa telling them about Jesus and here the president goes away to shoot lions and tigers for three weeks and he's got a ticker tape parade. And Henry was discouraged. And his wife put her hand on his back and looked him in the eyes and said, but honey there's something you need to realize. We're not home yet. This is your home that John describes if you're in Christ. Keep your eyes on that despite all the trials and tribulations we read about in the news and all the trials and tribulations you experience in life. Keep your eye on the big picture. God is wrapping things up to where His children will experience a happy ending. Because of what Christ has done. And if you're not saved, you ought to read this passage here. And it ought to scare you into being saved. Because you're literally one heartbeat away from missing out on everything that John is talking about here. You say, scare somebody into salvation. Yeah. Remember, Jude says, save some with fear and some with love. If love doesn't motivate you, maybe the fear of missing out on this will motivate you. Come to Christ before it is eternally too late. And you will not get a second chance. No, the Bible does not teach second chances. If you miss Christ, you miss out on everything we've looked at this morning. And you miss it for all of eternity. Don't gamble your soul. Come to Christ. Would you pray with me this morning, please? Father, thank you for this glorious inheritance that you allowed John to see and you told him to write about it so that we would know. 
Thank you for being such a kind and gracious and benevolent God. Thank you for saving us. Lord, thank you for what we have to look forward to. I do pray that we'd be filled with gratitude. That we would live our lives out of that position of gratitude. Lord, for the one who doesn't know Christ, do what only you can do. Draw them to Jesus. Lord, don't let them miss out on heaven. Please, save their souls. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.